Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on May 1st, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, a look at the new May issue of Scientific American with Editor-in-Chief John Rennie, and we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. But first, the big story this week, of course, swine flu. Scientific American editor Christine Suarez is our staff flu expert. We spoke in the magazine's library. Christine, this swine flu story is moving fast. We're talking on Tuesday afternoon. By the time people listen to this, things may have fundamentally changed. So I'm going to assume that people will follow it with all the technology available, radio, TV, and especially on their computers, just seeing developments in practically in real time. So let's talk about what you might not get in that real-time self-immersion that people might do. So, uh, for example, we're hearing death toll numbers, but the death toll numbers usually don't come in any kind of a context, like what's the total number of infections? Well, exactly. I mean, that is the key bit of information. As a matter of fact, some of the deaths have not been confirmed as swine flu cases. So it's impossible to draw any conclusion about how lethal this flu is from the numbers we have now. But that is exactly what the WHO and others are investigating, uh, the extent of infections, who actually had swine flu, who had regular flu, other respiratory infections, other causes of death. So that's a big question mark right now. So when you hear a number, for example, 150 dead out of Mexico, which I heard something close to that on the radio this morning, it's it's not really giving you much information. Well, no, because, again, those people may not all have been confirmed cases of swine flu. And, again, those are just the most serious cases that showed up in hospitals. So this virus could well have been spreading much more widely and causing mild illness in the majority of people. So what you're seeing is just the tip of the iceberg who got really, really sick. So what uh, what are the possible scenarios? I mean, a week from now, two weeks from now, how could things have gotten worse or how could things have gotten better? Well, it's very hard to tell. I mean, the numbers are rising very, very fast as people now start looking for this and testing it. Now, people who show up with respiratory illnesses, they're being tested. And lo and behold, they're finding a lot more infections than anybody realized were there. And uh, that is likely to continue. And, uh, I mean, one thing to bear in mind is flu season is about to wind down in the northern hemisphere, so perhaps this will actually just start winding down, but it's about to pick up in the southern hemisphere, so. So right now we've been seeing things moving north, maybe we'll start to see things moving south. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, one thing I was thinking was uh, looking at uh, the number of students, college students and younger students that were infected, it made me wonder what the role of spring break was in all of this. Interesting question. It could be the spring break flu. <laughs> well, the spring break travelers, in any case, uh, bringing it home. Is it unusual to see an outbreak this late in the flu season? I mean, you know, it's it's 90 degrees in New York today, and we don't think of flu as being a warm weather sickness. No, I think actually uh, the weather is the aberration. I mean, flu season is actually year-round in, in tropical zones. It's uh, seasonal in the more temperate zones, so... Nope, April is still fair game for flu. And could we see this same strain of flu just crop up again in the fall when, you know, typical flu season begins again? Certainly. Uh, you know, either it'll 
die down um, completely and disappear rather the way SARS did. Or, yes, we'll see it again in the fall. We'll see it all through the summer in the southern hemisphere. Uh, you have to remember, too, that H1N1 is originally a human virus that was given to pigs by us, and uh, it still circulates, a different variant of it, obviously, still circulates in people. So if this virus meets up with a human H1N1 that's a little more transmissible, it can really just become part of uh, the seasonal flu varieties that we already have circulating every year. This is H1N1 as opposed to, I mean, a few years ago we were all worried about the bird flu which is H5N1. What does that actually mean? Well, the H and the N refer to two proteins on the virus surface uh, that help it infect cells and also spread from cell to cell once they're in the lungs, in the case of birds, in the gut as well. Uh, so it's just a, a gross designation of a type of uh, virus. And then within each category, H1N1, for example, there's a lot of subtle variations that can happen in the genes of the virus that make them distinct. And so you can identify the certain strains that are circulating in people, the ones that are more commonly circulating in pigs. And this is an H1N1 virus that has been known to circulate in pigs and uh, seems to have picked up little bits and pieces from other H1N1 viruses that circulate in pigs elsewhere. The Spanish flu of 1918-1919 was an H1N1. But that doesn't mean that this is going to be another Spanish flu. Well, yes and no. It was an H1N1 because it was the first one identified and given this designation. So it got number one. And uh, yes, that is the very same H1N1 that caused the pandemic that after a couple of years settled down to become the circulating flu in humans until the 1950s when the next pandemic strain emerged. And sometime during that period, humans actually gave this H1N1 to pigs. So H1N1 in itself is a you know broad category of viruses that circulate in humans even now. It, it, they are not as fearsome as the uh, original strain when it first emerged. But the fact that it's an H1N1 has the uh, public health authorities really keeping an eye on it. I think probably because it could more easily recombine with a human flu strain. Um, I mean, I, I think the fact that it's not H5N1 is probably what's making me happier. But um, I, I don't think the fact that it's an H1N1 is a reason public health authorities would be more or less worried. But it is something to bear in mind that this is a strain that's been around for a long, long time in humans and in pigs. So it's not as completely novel on the scene as, say, one of these avian strains would have been. So uh, everybody should wash their hands often. Yes. And, uh, you know, just try to keep away from other people. Indeed. I mean, remember that the 1957 and 68 pandemics were actually quite mild in terms of illness. They were pandemics because it, they were new strains and because a larger number of people got infected. But as far as flu, they were kind of regular garden variety flu. And hopefully we may have dodged a bullet and this one will be like that too. Check out our ongoing coverage of the swine flu, which has already mutated semantically to become the H1N1 flu at Siam.com. Now that May is here, it's time for Editor-in-Chief John Rennie to visit the podcast to talk about the latest issue. We spoke in the magazine's library. Hey, John, it's that time again. Indeed it is. Hello. Hey. 
So the uh, the May issue has a really interesting cover. It's sort of a uh, a hybrid of a a human and a chimp. Yes, and that's that's, right. uh, that's not an old TV show from the sixties. <laughs> and and uh, the the title is What Makes Us Human. Right. What makes us human, at least in a genetic sense. This is uh, uh, the f- this cover story is a, a look at what information has been coming out of direct genetic comparisons of the chimpanzee genome and the human genome. So uh, we know that uh, chimpanzees represent our closest living animal relatives, and uh, they and the human line uh, sort of parted company about six million years ago. So the, the question really is, uh, you know, what kinds of genetic changes have, have cropped up since then that have helped make human beings what they are? Well, what's really interesting is uh, we're always hearing about, you know, chimps and humans are 98.7% the same, 99% whatever the number happens to be, depending on how you do your sequences. Right. But what's really interesting is that 1% difference that's really important. Right. It's not just, oh, we're so close. It's, yeah, we're so close genetically, but the differences are actually immense. And I can prove that to you because there ain't no chimps doing podcasts. We're go- <laughs> what? Don't go there. <laughs> so now the, the, the thing in the article that, that I had never heard before it talks about how many sequences, for example, in a chicken and a chimp, are much, much closer than in us and a chimp. And that's really fascinating. Right. Yeah. It actually is, it is, it is pretty astonishing that, that in many respects, in, during these past six million years, which are just, you know, a tiny piece of, of animal evolution, uh, within those portions of the genome where you're seeing differences pop up, you're looking at this kind of, uh, astonishingly accelerated rate of uh, change. Um, as you said, it is an extremely small number of differences that you find uh, genetically between uh, uh, humans and chimps, but it is an extremely important one. And what, what seems to make it so important is that a lot of these, uh, these differences seem to affect what are in fact regulatory sequences. Uh, they are, they're in some cases not the things that actually distinguish the, the types of proteins that we make. We and chimpanzees are basically made of almost exactly the same stuff. It's how it's all put together. And, uh, and so what we're seeing is that these very, very tiny tweaks in the, the instruction set basically for how to build, uh, a human body are profoundly uh, influential. And and uh, we really see that that's why you do look at this extraordinary difference between uh, us in chimpanzees and, in, for example, our mental capabilities and the rest. And that's what you'd expect. You'd expect to see it in the regulatory sequences because then the effect of a small change can be huge because you're affecting the timing or maybe the sequence of events in development. And so... It's like, you know, if you have two planes starting off on a very similar trajectory, mm-hmm. but it's not quite exactly the same. And, you know, come back in three hours and they're thousands of miles apart. Right, right. It shows in a lot of ways how how what I think was a, a kind of simple-minded approach that people took to what we might find in the genetic information in the past, uh, you know, like 
don't say simple-minded to be critical of anybody, but it was, you know, the obvious approach that you would look at the, the number of differences of the proteins and that would be the key to, uh, to what made things so different. And protein differences uh, are very important, but in fact it is, it is the instruction set that seems to be that much more important, which is why we're finding a lot of the most significant differences aren't ones in the stretches of DNA that uh, that encode the, the protein information. They're in what sometimes was referred to as the, as the junk DNA, as the pieces of information uh, that, that no one knew what they were doing in the past. Right. And one of them is uh, talked about in the articles, HAR1, and it seems that that's related to... The development of the cerebral cortex, right, which is obviously one of the places where chimps and us have a lot of differences. Mm-hmm. And uh, another one is the FOXP2 gene, which uh, winds up having a role in how you can work your mouth to speak. Right. Which is why we seem to have the kind of verbal abilities that we have that you don't see any place else in the, in the animal kingdom. Yeah, it's, what's actually sort of gratifying when you look at some of the differences that seem to be showing up is that, that a lot of these most significant tiny differences in the genomes between the humans and the chimps are in exactly where you would think they would be in terms of their effects. That is, you're seeing a disproportionate number of these showing up in things that uh, have to do with the the structure of our brains or uh, our our uh, uh, portions of our, our ability to speak, um, things having to do with our digestion because our, our dietary habits have changed quite a lot uh, over time. Uh, so it, it really, you know, it, it makes sense. It confirms what you would expect if you were comparing how does the organism of a human being differ from the organism of a chimpanzee. We have become so different from chimps and so incredibly wildly successful that we can do all kinds of amazingly creative things like uh, steal information from each other. (laughs) And we have an article by Wade Gibbs, uh, How to Steal Secrets Without Even Using a Computer Network. Right. It's like the old story of uh, the guys playing poker. And somebody's wearing glasses, and you can see the reflection of the cards that guy's holding mm-hmm. in his glasses, but on a much, much more sophisticated level. Actually, sort of, in some ways, surprisingly, almost not that much more sophisticated a level. I mean, the astonishing thing is that this kind of, of side-channel hacking that uh, Wake Gibbs is writing about um, is, is pretty much exactly that, that they point out that somebody with a $500 telescope at this point can uh, can use this to peer at the reflections in glasses or even just pick up reflections off the surface of your eye in many cases. Wow. Yeah, and it's it's astonishing the uh, the the these these kinds of things that are going on. And uh, uh, what's what's amazing and, and sort of ominous about it is that this kind of side channel hacking and that's it, the term of art is that's side, side channel, channel hacking, right? Because um, traditional hacking uh, it's based on the network itself. The idea that you're looking for someone who is finding a way to go in through the the orthodox ways of of uh, of accessing the computer information. Side channel hacking is completely sidestepping all of the usual kinds of uh, defenses that you could build up because those defenses are established in basically stopping one computer from surreptitiously tapping into information in another computer. In this case, you're doing the equivalent of hacking the room. You're picking up reflections off surfaces. You're taking vibrations from a, from a printer or the sound of a, uh, of a, of a, of a keyboard. And, um, a lot of these kinds Kinds of information are the sorts of things that we would normally think. Well, there's, you know, they're they're basically uh, indistinguishable. I mean, how does it really seem very different uh, if I'm pressing the uh, 
the E key on my keyboard from the F key? Well, in fact, with a certain level of highly sophisticated data processing that it's now possible to bring to the problem, you can often start to to draw conclusions about what somebody is typing just by the the sound of the clatter of their of their keyboard. And there are people who are out there instead of hacking into the actual electrons that are flowing mm-hmm. and and reading what you're up to that way, they're in an an office building a block away with a telescope looking through the office window of somebody else and just looking at the computer screen to read what they're up to. Right, or looking at reflections of that computer screen off other surfaces in the in the room. A painting with a glass cover. Right, right. Now, obviously, this is not a, a, a highly widespread form of hacking at this point, but what uh, concerns at least a lot of uh, data security uh, experts is that the technologies involved are relatively easy to get hold of and... Cheap and cheap and that uh, it's almost impossible in usual terms to uh, to try to insulate people well enough to uh, or to insulate rooms well enough that you that you can stop this kind of thing there's information leaking out of every room as long as the curtain's not completely down and even if the curtain is down <laughs> you can measure the vibration of the curtain somehow yeah i mean it's if you if you have uh if you have sensitive enough equipment it's astonishing the kinds of information you can deduce, deduce back out of that if you have enough sophisticated computer processing to back up the kind of analysis you want to do and again this is not a hugely widespread problem right now but this article is warning about what kind of problem it could become and what kind of safeguards need to be put in place. That's right. And again, uh, we're, we're such a sophisticated form of chimp, if you will, that uh, we've reached a point where we might even run out of food for ourselves. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's no, no question that as people have known for a long time, our, our food supply uh, is obviously pressed by a lot of different problems. Obviously, the numbers of people that, uh, that uh, it, it is trying to feed, uh, problems of shortages of water, uh, d- disappearing quantities of topsoil in which we have to, uh, to, to grow these different sorts of crops. Um, and, of course, now climate change, which also, is uh, throwing a lot of randomness or a lot of bad factors uh, into uh, our attempts to, to grow enough food for everybody. Uh, so uh, this uh, in, in the May issue, uh, Lester Brown of the Earth Policy Institute, um, he writes an essay in which he, he raises sort of the specter that potentially in uh, the decades to come uh, that if we are not careful uh, that, that these problems with maintaining a sufficient food supply could get bad enough that it actually would would threaten the state of civilization globally, that it just could cause widespread chaos, uh, cause large numbers of failed states, and, uh, you know, trigger an enormous number of, of problems down the line. And he's not just a chicken little running around, the sky's falling? Well, you know, there's no question. Lester Brown uh, has been uh, has been sounding some level of alarm about this for a number of decades. Um, he, he's, in fact, has, has seen some of these kinds of problems coming from a long way off. So, in fact, there, it's true there are people who certainly do think that maybe he has uh, sounded this particular alarm um, a few times too many. Uh, nevertheless, he, he is arguing that, in fact, what we are now seeing is the realization of a lot of the, the particular problems that he's been pointing to for several decades, um, and that uh, that we really do need to take the the appropriate steps to uh, to be able to intervene in this. The good news is, though, uh, is that I think he does feel that 
it is still possible to take some kinds of actions to respond to uh, the problems of climate change, to uh, do a better job of trying to conserve topsoil, to try to address the problems of water scarcity all over the world and so forth, uh, that, that we can actually head off a lot of these problems. He's just arguing that it would be a mistake to sort of maintain business as usual, um, that we need to go to a kind of plan B. The, the topsoil... What about the air we breathe? We have another article, the planetary air leak. Apparently we're losing the atmosphere. Well, now, Steve, don't, don't panic. Yes, the Earth's atmosphere is leaking away very, very, very slowly. This is a kind of phenomenon that happens to uh, all planets and all moons with atmospheres. Um, over time, um, it is, it is almost inevitable for, uh, for them to start to lose a lot of their atmosphere. Sometimes they can gather atmosphere too. Um, but, but on balance, uh, most planets start to lose some amount of their atmosphere over time. Um, they lose their atmosphere partly because the temperature of the sun, of course, uh, makes some of the, uh, the gases, uh, in the atmosphere, uh, very warm and some of the, the atoms or molecules, uh, then, uh, reach escape velocity and fly away from the planets. Uh, but a variety of other circumstances, for example, the impact of big asteroids can blast a lot of atmosphere away, and a lot of other more more subtle phenomena can happen that can also sort of draw uh, the atmosphere away. So this has always been happening on the Earth, and in fact it's happened uh, uh, on uh, Venus and on Mars, and uh, in, in fact a lot of when we look at these worlds, a lot of these same kinds of, of uh, phenomena have been taking place, um, sometimes reaching extremely different ends. It's, it's, uh, may seem surprising to people, but uh, you can look at something like Mars, uh, which has a very thin atmosphere, and you can look at something like uh, Venus, uh, which we tend to think of as sort of having this, this rather heavy, clouded atmosphere, which is, you know, hellishly warm because of runaway greenhouse effects. And on both of those planets, you're seeing this, this uh, phenomenon of uh, the, the atmosphere leaking away is actually what directly what's led to uh, to those very different outcomes for those planets. The specifics of uh, what happened as the atmosphere started to go in each case uh, made all the difference. Venus lost all the good stuff, and Mars lost all the stuff. Well, or almost, yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's 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 basically that's right. In the case of Venus, you're seeing that uh, the the effects that were going on were drawing away uh, the the oxygen disproportionately and leaving the planet enriched uh, with carbon dioxide in its atmosphere. And in the case of Mars, you were just looking at a lot of phenomena that were taking away a lot of the atmosphere in general and leaving the oxygen so that it could uh, start to to oxidize a lot of the surface of the planet. That's why it's red. Yes, it is. Hey, uh, where do you gather new atmosphere from? You go to the, the atmosphere store? Planets, uh, get, a lot of the atmospheres that they have tend to come from, from fairly early in their, uh, their, their formation. A lot of the, uh, the atmosphere forms as a result of, uh, gases that either leak out of their interior or that sort of evolve from chemical processes and that, that accumulate. Um, but you can also have, you know, comets or other sorts of bodies can slam into to a young planet and can deposit a lot of atmosphere uh, that way. So all we'd need is another major... Uh, asteroid collision to increase our supply of atmosphere. Yeah, on balance, we would probably be a lot happier if you could find a way to go to the atmosphere store, but I think I can only emphasize we don't actually need more atmosphere here on Earth. Okay. Uh, and maybe, of course, in, maybe in romantic little French restaurants. I don't, I don't know about that. Well, I was going to say, the, you know, the restaurant on the moon, of course, you know about I was not aware of the restaurant on the moon. Right. The food is great, but no. No atmosphere. Thank you. Oh, good heavens. So, uh, 
walked there, right into that. A lot of other uh, interesting things in the May issue. I just wanted to share with you. Uh, I know that you've seen this before, but you haven't looked at it in some weeks. Our uh, very popular 50, 100, and 150 years ago in Scientific American page. And in May of 1859, <laughs> we wrote... An ingenious individual of Liskiard, Cornwall, England, has, for some time past, been exhibiting himself in a dress composed from top to toe of rat skins, <laughs> which he has been collecting for three years and a half. The dress was made entirely by himself. It consists of hat, neckerchief, coat, waistcoat, trousers, tippet, whatever that is, gaiters, <laughs> and shoes. The number of rats required to complete the suit was... 670. 670. Anybody out there had 670 in the pool, you win. <laughs> and the individual, when thus dressed, appears exactly like that of the Esquimo. I believe that would not... This is, this is spelled E-S-Q-U-I-M-A-U-X. We were a more refined people in those days. Yes. Described in the travels of Parry and Ross. Nah. So uh there you go. Anybody who was wondering how many rats it would take... To, uh, Steve, here's a question I have is, I mean, it's an astonishing enough story that way to hear about the, 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 uh, the tailoring of this, uh, suit made of rat skins. But what I don't understand is, how do you manage to have that on today? I have two cats. Ah. <laughs> Need I say more? Well, I would do it. So now we know how many holes it takes to fill the Albert Hall. I mean, rat skins <laughs> it takes to make a coat. <laughs> Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a tree heretofore unknown to science covers about 8,000 square kilometers in Ethiopia. Story two, House of Representatives Minority Leader John Boehner thinks that because we exhale carbon dioxide, it can't be harmful to the environment. Story three, all bats, regardless of size and type of perch, land on the perch the same way. And story four, a small study of radiologists found that those who listened to classical music as they examined images made better diagnoses. By the way, back on the March 19th podcast during a discussion of malaria, I referred to plasmodium bacteria. That was very wrong of me. The parasite that causes malaria is a protozoan, not a bacterium. As for this week's Totally Bogus, time's up. Story one is true. 8,000 square kilometers of Ethiopia are dominated by millions of acacia fumosia trees, which scientists had never before identified. The find was reported in the journal Science. The area's inaccessibility, to which political unrest contributes, has kept scientists away. Some 300 species of flowering plants from Africa alone are described in the literature for the first time each year. Story two is true. Representative Boehner made his remarkably error-filled comments about carbon emissions in a discussion with George Stephanopoulos on the April 19th episode of ABC's This Week. What is the Republican plan to deal with carbon emissions, which every major scientific organization has said is contributing to climate change? George, the idea that carbon dioxide uh, is, is a carcinogen that is harmful to our environment it's almost comical. Every time we exhale, we exhale carbon dioxide. Uh, every cow in the world, uh, you know, when they do what they do, you've got more carbon dioxide. 
And so I think so you uh, it's clear we've had climate change over the last hundred years. Listen, it's clear we've had change in our climate. The question is, how much does man have to to do with it, and uh, what is the proper way to deal with this? And story four is true. Listening to classical music improved radiologists' diagnostic efficiency and accuracy. The preliminary study included eight radiologists and was presented April 27th at the annual meeting of the American Röntgenray Society. All of which means that story three about all bat species landing on their perches the same way is totally bogus. Oh, they all hang upside down. But a Brown University study of three species of bats in the journal Experimental Biology found at least two completely different methods of landing in that upside-down position. A Southeast Asian tree-roosting bat executes a half-backflip to land with its back legs and thumbs hitting the landing site simultaneously, a four-point landing. But two cave-roosting bats from the Americas come in vertically, then yaw hard right or left into a cartwheel and grab the landing pad with just the back legs. With 1,200 species of bats worldwide, there's plenty more slow-motion camera work left to do for aspiring doctoral students. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out Siam.com for the latest science news, including the latest news about the flu, such as our list of five ways to protect yourself and others from it. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.